Hey, if you got a Bible, and I hope you do, open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31. It's going to be one short little verse that we're going to launch from. And today we're going to read a lot of scripture. And I have a, a special kind of a standalone message on my heart today that uh, I'm going to preach. And then to give you a heads up of where we're going, we in the next couple weeks are going to be uh, doing a short series on the church itself. It's going to be probably three, four, five weeks. And we are going to look at the church, what the church is, how it should be structured, um, the, the elders of a church, what eldership is, uh, the purpose and the mission of a church. And I think it's going to be a real, real critical time for us. We have not, I have not taught really on the church in the, it, since Crosspoint began uh, a, a little under four years ago. And so I think it, it's going to be a real important time for us to do that and a real instructive time. So I'm looking forward to that. We're going to start that next Sunday. And if you miss any of those messages, I'd love for you to, to get them um, by, by podcast or by CD. So be looking forward to that. But today, I'm going to be just preaching a standalone message out of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31. And I believe that this particular verse that I'm going to be speaking out of today is, um, is, is one of the verses that is... Uh, one of the verses in the Bible that is never, ever out of context. And um, we're going to get into that in just a second. But um, maybe it's just me, but is it like 7,000 degrees in here right now, or is, or, or is the women cold? Are you guys cold? Is it a little warm? <laughs> the guys are saying it's hot, brother, and the women are saying it's freezing. Good, <laughs> good. Well, speaking of the women, um, um, we have a few women in here. I just have a burden right now to, to stop and pray for the pregnant ladies that are in the room because we will acquiesce to you and what your temperature gauge says. But... Um, you know, we, Christian Ogden, um, I don't know if Christian's in here or maybe she's, she's not here today, but Christian is uh, Lance's, or Lance usually stands right here during the worship time, and Christian is pregnant, and um, she's been having some, some, uh, so some complications. I think everything's okay, but she's kind of on partial bed rest, and so we want to pray for Christian, and I see Sheila Travis there, and Sheila is um, about 25 weeks pregnant, and we want to pray for Sheila, and um, there's some other pregnant people in here too. Um, some of them are not public yet with it, but one of them is. And um, I just want to give a big yeah right on to my man Bruce Jones because we just found out recently that Bruce and Lucy Jones are going to have a baby. So way to go. <laughs> yeah. No, no. Come on, baby. <laughs> Bruce, I know where you are, brother. I've been there on several occasions. Life was good. You were settled in, you were out of diapers, everybody was on cruise control, everybody could fix their own food, everybody could get themselves dressed in the morning. No more, brother. Welcome back. Welcome back. Just when you thought it was safe to get back in the water again. Yes. Um, so um, <laughs> praise the Lord for, uh, for babies. And um, here, here, let's do this. Let's just pray for, for the, the ladies in this room. I may have even um, forgot to mention one. I see the little babies pressed into Caleb here. Let's just pray for God to uh, bless our pregnant ladies. We uh, have, we, we love babies here, and, um, and we think that, that Christians should, should make Christians. And so let's just pray for God to, to bless our pregnant women. Lord, thank you so much for, for the blessing and the gift of children. We don't take that lightly. We live in a culture that wants to, um, when it's inconvenient, to uh, discard children and places a very low priority and a low value on human life. And Lord, we, we believe deeply in how precious life is. And so I pray, God, that you would be with each one of these ladies that we've mentioned, particularly Christian today, as she's on partial bed rest. I pray, God, that you would 
give her body strength, that you'd let the pregnancy go well. Thank you, God, for Bruce and Lucy and their great news. I pray for Sheila. God, I know I'm probably forgetting one or two other folks. There's so many people in this church that are always pregnant. But God, would you bless all of the pregnant ladies? And, um, and thank you for these two little babies, Caleb and Preston, these two little twins. God, thank you for them. And I pray a blessing that you would let each one of these pregnancies go well and that um, we would welcome these new babies to the tribe shortly. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is, verse 31, is one of those verses that, like I mentioned before, it's never out of context. And, and the verse is simply this. It says, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Um, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but we are living in probably the most volatile time since I've been alive. I mean... <laughs> The, every day it seems like the, the financial news gets worse. I think sometime this week, Thursday or Friday, I think the stock market was probably as low as it's been since 2003 or something along those lines. And I'm not exactly sure all that that means, what the ramifications are. There are people in this room who are, are much smarter on that than I am. And, and then you kind of get the, just if you watch the news, you get the feeling that kind of like the sky is falling and there just seems this, this nervous look on on uh, the, the people's faces that are the talking heads on TV. And, and in fact, just last night I was watching Fox News and they had this guy on there and he was, he was creating this scenario where, you know, doom and gloom happens in five years. And I started watching it. And I mean, I was, I, I was like ready to, I mean, I, I, was, I was about ready to call some boys back in the army and get some munitions and start digging a hole in my backyard and building a bunker. And so it's, it's just kind of like the world just sort of seems like it's, it's sort of caving in. And what I've noticed is, is that um, my conversations with uh, other Christians have been sort of taking on a subconscious, negative, sarcastic, cynical, kind of fearful mode lately. And um, I am guilty of that. And I, I just want to stop before we get into this message series on the church and just, just talk a little bit about orienti orienting ourselves for the glory of God in a very, uh, very difficult, very anxiety-filled time. And so um, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to come up with four things that I think we can do to live out this verse. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And um, I got four things, and they're just kind of things that I've been thinking about, praying about, things that I think apply to my life, things where I think I need to do better to live for the glory of God in a situation, whether I eat or whether I drink or whether I walk through a recession or whether I wonder about what's going to happen or whether I'm happy with who's in charge politically or whether or, or whatever you do. I mean, whatever. That, that word whatever is one of my favorite words in the whole world because I was a kid that grew up in the valley in California in the 80s when the word whatever was invented. You know, whatever. Like what. Whatever, whatever. We used to have a little sign. What, whatever, whatever, whatever. Think about the power of that word. Whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink or whether you work or whether you are married or whether you argue or whether you watch TV or whether you participate in leisure or whether you recreate or whether you 
procreate or whether you, you uh, consummate or, 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 or any word with eight on the end of it, whatever action, whatever you do, that's everything. How, how you argue with your spouse, how you get up in the morning after having spent the night, having seen your child throw up 10 times how you do that, how you cry in the hallway, how you listen to a message, how you drive to church in the morning, how you engage the scriptures, whatever you do, how you walk through a recession, how you watch some psychopath on Fox News scare you into militia forming mode, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Because the whole world is for the glory of God. And so I've got four little things here, and they're, I don't think that they're particularly profound, but they apply very much to me. And uh, the first one is that to live for the glory of God in very, very uncertain times, I need to do everything without grumbling. Do everything without grumbling. Um, there's this gentleman in town that I know, and he's a good brother, and he loves Jesus. But he has one of those um, cars where I think he's using his bumper to espouse his political views. I mean, to, to everybody. And and he's I, I think he loves Jesus. I'm pretty sure he loves Jesus. But on the the, the if you took 100% of his back, you know, tailgate bumper space. 98% of it is just, I mean, it is just, it's the bumper stickers, don't blame me, I voted for, you know, blank. And then one of them was my favorite. I have a brain, therefore I voted blank. You know, and it's just, you know, just all sorts of stickers, just how can you be such an idiot to vote for this person? I mean, just really encouraging stuff, which always kind of, I wanted to say to him one time, I said, brother, like, is you're saying, hey, I've got one opportunity. If you're a bumper sticker type of person, I'm not a bumper sticker type of person. We, that's kind of a well-documented uh, well thing here. But if you're a bumper sticker person, uh, you're okay, that's fine. I just think there's a lot of bad theology on bumper stickers, but I don't have time to unpack that. But, but I said, hey, man, I want to say to him, I haven't said to him, hey, dude, is it like, you're like, hey, I've got one opportunity to impact somebody in traffic. And the message, <laughs> the message I want to get out to the world is don't blame me, I voted for... You know, you're, well, really? I mean, I'm okay, whatever. And so he's got like 98% is just political, intense, just vitriolic passion. And then at the bottom right, he's got a couple fish, you know. And it's like, and then there's a bumper sticker for his church, like, follow me to, you know, where you will find everlasting peace, joy, and happiness. And I'm like, really? I, I, Whatever, dude. But, but let me read you a scripture. Whatever, whatever, dude. Check this out. Um, this is what the Apostle Paul, who wrote the same verse that we started off with, says to a group of people who are undergoing Roman... Per they're, they're underneath the thumb of a government that is much worse than ours is. They're living in a setting and a context that is much more anxiety-filled than ours is. I mean, don't we, as Americans, don't we have just such a limited perspective on suffering and, and, and difficulty? I mean, don't we, we do, man. It is un. 
believable. But, but he's writing to a Philippian church, and he's writing from prison, by the way. And, and just to give you a little context on his attitude about trial and tribulation and anxiety, he's writing from prison, and his response to being thrown in prison for preaching the gospel is not, oh my gosh, how am I now going to be effective for Jesus now in prison? But his response is, this is awesome, because now I get to witness to the Roman prison guards. Isn't that great? I mean, what a perspective. And this is what he writes to them in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 14. He says, do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights of the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. I mean, think about what he's saying there. He's saying, hey, look, look, we live in a broken world. And I don't think this verse says that we don't need to be politically active or that we don't need to have an opinion or that we don't even need to be activists for certain causes. But there's this attitude, I think, that grips us sometimes when we are anxious and when we are fearful that does nothing but hurt our witness for the gospel. And... So how, the first thing I'm preaching to myself is how do, I, how do I do whatever for the glory of God is the first thing I do is that I, I, I do all without grumbling or complaining and without kind of the sarcastic, cynical view of the world. That is about as appealing as toenail clippings. And I don't know why or where that came from, but it, it works. And, and so do all, do all without grumbling or complaining that we would be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. The second, the second thing that um, I'm feeling like God is calling me to do to live out his glory, live in a God-glorifying orientation, and th- I think this is maybe um, one of the most profound truths in the Bible that I just still have difficulty wrapping my mind around is, is this notion is point to remember that all things work together for good for those that are Christians. Listen to this verse, Romans 8, 28. We talk about it a lot here at Crosspoint. And again, this is the Apostle Paul speaking. And he says, and I think that this one verse, I think that this is one of the most spectacularly stunning verses when you just think about it and when you meditate on it in the entire scriptures. It says this, Paul says this. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things. Now, either all things, e- either it means everything or it doesn't mean anything at all. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I think this is really important that we understand this. This only, this only applies to Christians because this is kind of the, one of those kumbaya coffee cup verses that, that we just like to quote, and you hear people quote when they don't know anything about the Lord, and they're not living for him. It's like, oh, well, everything's just kind of going to work out, and, you know, just kind of this general notion of karma. Like, if I'm a pretty good person, things are going to go okay for me. The only problem with that is the Bible, 
which says that the only people that it really goes good for are people that have received Christ as their Savior, and that's the gospel. That means that you have trusted in Christ. That means that you have realized that you are in need of a Savior and that you need to receive him and that what he did on the cross is the only sacrifice that is worthy to 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 take away God's anger at sin and rebellion and that Jesus did that and that you receive that by faith and now your life, the rest of your life, not just that one momentary moment, but the rest of your life is lived in response to that and that now is called Christianity and people that have done that For them, this promise is true. This promise is not true for the whole world. Because for many people in the world, economic downturns and war and difficult things are very, very bad news. And they they work for, for nothing but they're bad because they don't know Christ because they haven't received him. But for us, this scripture is stunning. It says that if you're a Christian, that all things work together all things. Now, I kind of have a, I have a strange mind that kind of tries to wrap my, but all things, and maybe I'm taking this verse too literally, but, but like all things, like, you know, the, the, like the six degrees of separation experiment or whatever, have, have you guys, you know, like, like it started with Kevin Bacon, I guess, like somebody, everybody knows Kevin Bacon, like we're only six people removed or whatever from, is that what I, am I getting that right? Okay. It's some Facebook thing, I guess. I'm not really into it, but anyway, I guess we all know everybody by like just six people removed from us but I mean like right now uh, this kind of blows me away right now like there's something going on in some little corridor or hallway in Washington DC or in the capital in Atlanta that is just seemingly completely unrelated to me that's then going to cause one domino to fall, that's then going to cause another domino to fall, it's going to cause a billion little decision dominoes to fall, that's going to cause something to happen, which is going to cause some rate to be this, or cause some decision to be this, or cause some, just, it's mind-blowing, it cause some person to get a job, which causes another person to not get a job, I mean, it's just unbelievable, everything, everything, just, just sit there for a second and think about how God, how big he is, that there's, that there's some, there's some explosion going out in the universe right now that is causing some light. I mean, it's just mind-blowing when you think about all the little things that are happening. Are you guys into this or is it just me? Are you going to let me just blow up? right? This is unbelievable to think that God is out in front of everything that happens in the universe, cosmic explosions and conniving politicians and ignorant financial advisors. Everything works together for the good of those who love God. If that doesn't cause you to just... Just shadow box, man. I don't know what does. That is stunning. That is spectacular. And you know what the fruit of that is? For those that love God, peace and assurance and confidence. Philippians 1.6 says that he who began a good work in me and you, if you are a Christian, he will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 1.12, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him until that day. Those are stunning and spectacular verses that should blow up our small little frames 
but cause us to be anxious and scared and worried. Now, I, I realize that 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 does not mean that we should. I mean, there's nothing more like irritating than the people who are always happy. You know, have you ever come across happy Christian? You know, and they're just you're like, yeah, bless God, brother, walking in faith and power. And, and you know, you 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 don't want to be like the killjoy, so you, but you don't want to go all the way. So you're going, oh yeah, bless God. You, know, you just want to hit him. You know, you know that type of. I mean, I'm not saying that we have to be. And detached, because, you know, in that same letter that Paul writes that, verse Romans 8, 28, he also writes in Romans 12, he says, hey, we should rejoice with those who rejoice, and we should weep with those who weep, and mourn with those who mourn. I mean, I mean there's this story of Jesus bringing Lazarus, and this is unbelievable. Jesus brings Lazarus, this, this man, a friend of his who was dead for three, three days, he brings him back to life. He speaks a word and Lazarus comes. And you know what? This is, this is mind-blowing when you think about how grief and joy, how confidence and sorrow can work together in the same mind. We see it will work together in Jesus' mind because he, he brings Lazarus back from the dead. But he, he seems to take his own sweet time getting to the city where Lazarus is knowing that he's dead. In fact, he seems to indicate to his disciples, and you can read about this in John chapter 11, I think it is, that I need to... I need to wait a little bit so that Lazarus can die here. And then when I get there, I know that I'm going to bring him back to life. But it says that when Jesus got there and saw the sorrow of his sisters, Martha and Mary, he wept. So why would Jesus weep when he knows that in a few minutes he's going to throw down the ultimate juice card and bring Lazarus back to life? Because he's confident in what God is doing in him, but he's also in the moment so we can be people who are utterly, profoundly confident and sure of who God is, but we can also be people that feel the pain of the moment. That is unbelievably beautiful, I think, this mixture that this confident life in Christ calls us to remember that all things work together for good for the Christian. I think an important corollary of this is we don't have to feel like we need to have the answer to every question listen to this Romans chapter 11 and this is this is pretty amazing here Romans chapter 8 9 10 and 11 are probably the four most theologically weighty and rich and difficult chapters in the entire Bible and towards the end of this in Romans chapter 11 Paul makes this argument where he seems to be saying that God has taken the sin of Israel's rebellion in refusing, by and large, not that some Jews did not receive Christ, but by and large, the national sin of, of rebellion, of rejecting Christ as Messiah, how he, God, has even worked that sin for the good of the rest of the world who then became partakers of this. And so, and the, the, the argument is much deeper than that. But listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 11 and verse 28. He says, as regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. I'm going to make a point here in just a second. Bear with me. Verse 30. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. So what God is saying is, is that the sin of Israel, I have now worked together for the blessing of you. 
So he's saying, now I'm going to work this all together. I am providentially in control of every decision, whether it be the Old Testament nation of Israel or whether it be the faulty decision of a politician in modern-day America in 2009. I am in control of rebellion. I am in control of finite, wicked men. I am in control of people who don't know what they're doing, and I can bring it together for my blessing. That's amazing. And then he says, he continues, for God has consigned all this to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. In verse 33, because I think this is the point I want to make here that's so important because when we start to figure out, well, God, what are you doing? Why would you let this happen? How can this be? It can cause your brain to sort of, to sort of just go haywire. And I think this is an important point because Paul realizes that if he takes this too much further, it can just cause so many questions that potentially could just vex our soul. Like, God, why, why, why would you... Why would you let this happen? And then he says, there's just a point here where we just got to push back from the table of questioning where God is in a situation. Just say, oh, God, you are amazing. And that's what he says in verse 33. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And there's a point there where you just got to say, God, I, in fact, the NIV version of that says his ways are past finding out. How can Romans 8.28 be true? I mean, how can that verse be true? Remember, all things work together the good of those that love God, how, how can that be true in light of maybe the current situation that some of you may be in this moment? Well, if you try to figure that out, you're, you'd blow up. But if at some point you just say, God, I owe the depth and the riches of the wisdom of God. His ways are past finding out, but I have confidence in who you are. All right, the third thing that I think is important to orient ourselves towards to live a life of whatever we do glorifies God is realize that God, and I think this is particularly important, realize that God delights in getting glory by eliminating opportunities for human boasting. There's this story that I think we should all be familiar with. If you're not, I want you to go home and read this story this afternoon, and I'll kind of summarize it for you. It's in Judges chapter 7. It's an Old Testament book um, right after Joshua. And it tells the story of this man, this leader of Israel named Gideon. And Gideon was a military leader for Israel. And he was um, called by God to engage a group of people called the Midianites in battle. And the Bible says about the Midianites that they had more soldiers than there were locusts in the field, which is a lot. In fact, just the other day, um, Joseph, my oldest son, he's kind of into the animal planet and he comes up to me and he says, hey, Dad, do you realize that if um, you took all of the locusts in the world and you spread them out like a blanket, it would cover one-third of the earth? And I, and I said, really? <laughs> I said, one-third of you? I said, Joseph, you realize that that's, that's a lot. And then he goes, oh, maybe not. I don't know. He was, so he went back and checked it. I don't know if I don't know if it, I don't even know if it's true, but it sounded good. But the point is, the point is, is that think about this. The Midianites 
outnumbered locusts. So in other words, there's a lot of people. And Gideon had 32,000 men. And so in Gideon, in Judges chapter 7, um, what God tells him is he says, hey, um, you know, look, there's too many people here for you to fight with for me to get glory. So I want to trim this army down so that when you beat the Midianites, you can't say it was our 32,000 men that did it, but now I'm going to remove all opportunity for human boasting. And so he says, okay, go tell the guys that whoever doesn't really want to do it, whoever's fearful, you know, whoever isn't really, heart isn't in it, tell them to go home. And so of the 32,000 men at the beginning of Judges chapter 7, 22 are like, peace out. <laughs> Thank you very much. I just got my walking papers. I'm out. And so now he has 10,000 men. And then he, he does this really, God tells Gideon to do this really, really strange, strange thing. And it's in the Bible. He says, he says, okay, now of these remaining guys that you have, have them go down to the, to the brook or the river or, and, and, and have them drink water. And the ones that, that get down on their um, get down and lap the water like a dog, kind of notice who they are. And then the other guys that get on their knees and drink the water, kind of notice who they are. They are. And so, I mean, think about that. It's like, can you imagine, like, okay, water break, all right, everybody go down. And Gideon's like, all right, of the 10,000. And so he's seeing guys that are lapping water like a dog, whatever that means, because, you know, I mean, and, then, and then he's seeing guys that get down on their knees to get the water. He's like, okay, Johnny, over there, you're, he's, in, he's, a, he's on his knee. I mean, just think about that. And there were 300 guys that lapped the water like a dog of this great number of people. And then God says, aha, those 300, use them. Now, I know some of you are Old Testament scholars in here, and you've got some great reason, and I know I'm getting a couple of emails about this sometime this week. Like, well, you know, obviously the reason that God chose the ones that lapped the water like a dog is because those that got down on their knees were not as, were not as watchful, and they kind of let down their guard by getting down. And so what God was doing was he wanted to... Okay, cowboy, if that's the way you want to read it. I mean, in fact, I read a few commentaries that kind of... But then I was, I was really comforted by this one commentary that I read that said, this just makes no sense. I mean, can you believe this? I don't know what God was doing here. It's just one of those things that God does, just, and he just did it. And he chose these 300 dudes almost arbitrarily, almost seemingly without reason, so that it could be utterly just wisdom, earthly wisdom confounding, so that I can take 300 dudes that lap water like a dog and beat a locust army of Midianites just so I can get glory. I mean, isn't that amazing? God takes 300 guys. And then it goes on, Judges chapter 7, to show that he, he defeats Gideon with this army of 300 men, defeats these thousands and thousands of Midianites. Check this out, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let me read this to you. This is important for us to remember. 1 Corinthians 1, same book we started out in back at the first chapter. 1 Corinthians 1. Verse 18, it says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I mean, do you realize that if you, if you or I were the sovereign, divine creator of everything, 
we probably would have come up with a different plan on how to work out our glory and redemption on this earth. I mean, to endure, you know, the, the allowing of Jesus to die on the cross is one of the most unbelievably humble, is the most humble thing that's ever happened in the world and in the eyes of human wisdom of how you should exert control and make things happen. It is foolish. It is foolish. There are much more practical ways to save the world than to let yourself be killed by your creation. And it says here it's folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. And we could put a parenthesis in there. And Americans seek financial stability and confidence in their military and, and uh, confidence in capitalism and confidence in Republicans, put your parentheses in there. But for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, and Christians here today in America in 2009, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Or consider, consider your calling, brothers, he says. Consider your life. Consider how you came to Christ. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were no, of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God takes 300 cats who lap their water like dogs to beat a huge army of Midianites for the sole purpose of eliminating opportunities for people to say, look what we did. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts Boast in the Lord. Point three, realize that God delights in getting glory by eliminating opportunities for human boasting. That is spectacular. And the final one is, and this is what we're going to end on, ways to orient yourself for God's glory in fearful, anxious-filled times is to simply cast your anxieties upon God. We talk about it all the time. We talk about praying. We talk about gathering together. But, but it seems like most of what we do in Christianity and church circles is we just sort of talk about it, but we rarely do it. I mean, there's a few guys that kind of rise up above the cloud and, you know, get together early on Tuesday morning to pray, and occasionally it happens. But, but because we've got songs to play and because we've got a sermon to preach and because we've got things to do, we just, we just rarely sort of take time in a church service to pray. And to say, okay, we're going to play some songs here and we're just going to open this up and we're just going to, right now is the time to cast your anxieties upon God. Let me read you the scripture and then we're going we're to respond to God. First Peter chapter 5. 
1 Peter chapter 5. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I think it's quite simple. Peter is writing to a people who are under stress and under trial and under a fearful anxiety of what's next. Reynolds spoke about this last week, and he's been leading a men's Bible study on Wednesday about living in stress-filled times and how difficult it is to follow Christ in these times. And Peter simply says, cast, cast, your, cast your anxieties, your cares upon God. And the way that most often works out in the Christian life is to pray, to get together and pray and say, God, we... Look, if we were to try and figure out how you were making all of the dominoes align together for my good, it would, it, would, it would cause us despair. But if we get together in a room and we say, you know, we don't really understand how God could be working in a situation like this, but we're going to do, do a couple things. We're going we're gonna to not be sarcastic, cynical Christians who think that the sky is falling because a certain political party is in power or not in power. And that we're not going to be sort of really small-minded Christians who, who um, think that because, you know, our stock market falls, that this is now an indication that maybe something, you know, I mean, God is all of a sudden, like God was up there in heaven, you know, thinking, oh, snap, what just happened? Holy Spirit, did you hear what happened on Wall Street today? Get down there and figure that thing out and report back to me tomorrow morning at morning formation. I mean, Come on. Come on. And so, so we do it with all, without grumbling, and we, we realize that God is providentially in control, and we take great comfort in that, and we don't have to do it in some checked out, praise God sort of way, but we're, we're Christians who are simultaneously glad and grave. We can have a gladness and a gravity. We can rejoice and we can mourn. And then we, we realize that God may be. Now, I don't want to try and prophetically speak here, but God may be stripping America of some self-reliance so that he can get more glory. I mean, just may be. I, I don't want to be the guy. That's, I'm, I'm, I gotta, I've learned a lot more than to start making pronouncements about what God is doing. But maybe God is doing something like that. Maybe. Just maybe. Do you know, I heard this in a message the other day from John Piper, who you guys know I like a lot, and he preached on the recession. I said I was going to send this message out to you, and I think I will. Hopefully you'll listen to it. Do you know that what the poorest state in the nation is? The poorest state per capita in the nation. Mississippi. Do you know what the most generous state in the nation is per capita is? You guessed it, Mississippi. Something happens, man. When God strips you of stuff, you just kind of relocate your joy, not in your stuff, but in God. And so maybe, maybe God, but I'll, I'll be quiet there because I don't want to speak for God lest I sound like one of these cats on TBN who I just want to, anyway. All right, enough of that. 
And the final point is here, do all things without grumbling. Remember that God's in control. Realize that God may be up to something and that should give us great confidence. And now we get together and we say, God, I'm just gonna cast my cares upon you, God. Look, I don't have to be like an observer of this. I'm in it, God. My stuff is hurting. My, I'm scared. I, I'm, there are people in this room that have gotten laid off. I just got an email from a brother in the church who just got terrible news at work. And, and man, I'm not going to throw some steam out like, well, bless God, brother. God's in control. It's Romans 8, 28. I mean, I, I know we can get in this and we can say, God, I'm going to cast all of my cares on you because you care for me and you are a God who hears us and you are a God who moves and you are a God who draws things out of us and works on our behalf for your glory. But right now, it's the ball's in our court to worry about it at the water cooler or to cast all of our cares together as a community on God. Back to our first verse. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. Guys, come on back. Let's pray. Lord, as we um, move into a time of worship and response and prayer, I pray that you would take these simple words and that you would use them to ignite something in us, to ignite a confidence in us, to ignite a assurance in us, and to ignite a passion in us to live out the biblical mandates of how to live life in a God-glorifying way in a broken world. But I know that I am particularly guilty of sarcasm and cynicism, and so I pray, first of all, I repent of that. And I pray, God, that you would help me, as Paul writes to the Philippians, to do all things without grumbling and complaining or questioning so that I can live, that I can shine like a light in a broken and crooked generation. And secondly, God, I know that there are people in this room that have suffered tremendous loss or are staring down the barrel of a potentially very uncertain future. I know that, God, and I pray, God, that they would, we would not just sort of check our brains at the door and say, oh, well, things will work out. Just have faith. But that we would be real people who in the flesh hurt together, rejoice together, and walk through valleys together and walk through dark times together and, and grip hands with one another and pray. But all along, we have this abiding other than this world confidence that you have this unbelievable way of providentially controlling all things so that in the end, even though maybe not in this lifetime, but in the end, all things work together for good. That is, that is, that truth is so enormous, I can't wrap my brain around it. But God, I, I, I put faith in that truth. And Pray that we would collectively do that. And finally, God, help us not be passive Christians who spend all of our time worrying about things and then in conversation a week later say, oh yeah, I've been praying about this. But let us actually be people who pray, who cast all of our cares upon you because you care for us. Because you 
you're doing things. You're, you're moving in ways that we cannot even imagine. God, would we, would we just spend the next 20 minutes or so praying together as we worship?